0: at AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we continue our reflections into the great Christian thinkers through the ages. And before we get into our most exciting figure tonight, St. Anselm of Canterbury, one of those great doctors of the Church, one of those eminent figures that comes to us from the Middle Ages, I thought we would first take up a question that I received this past week. And it's a question I've talked about to some extent, but it it would be good to really get back into that question, which is, what is that one thing that the Church Fathers teach us? What is that one thing that these great Christian thinkers teach us? We may think it is one doctrine, if we will, but if there is anything that all of these Church Fathers and all of these great thinkers through the years teach us, it is this the call to be set apart from the world, and that ultimately the clarity to which they teach, the clarity to which they preach, comes out of a holiness, comes out of a deeper union with God. So what do they teach us? This call to be set apart, this call not to be distracted. You know, the more time I spend with this question, what is that one thing that they teach us, is that they overcome and work through their distractions, And what happens is they have this laser-like, singular focus on God. And so what do they teach us? They teach us how to overcome the adversary. For some of us, we think of Satan as this thing that belongs to antiquity. But if there's anything that Pope Francis has reminded us, it is that Satan's presence is alive and active. I'm looking down at one quote, and he says, We are all tempted... Because the law of our spiritual life, our Christian life, is a "what?" struggle. A struggle, he emphasized. That's because the prince of this world, Satan, doesn't want our holiness. He doesn't want us to follow Christ. He goes on. "Maybe some of you might say, "But Father, how old-fashioned you are to speak about the devil in the 21st century." But he says, "Look out because the devil is present. the devil is here." even in the 21st century. And we mustn't be naive, right? We must learn from the gospel how to fight against Satan. These are the words of Pope Francis, words that he has echoed time and time again. We need to enter into this spiritual warfare. Holiness sets us apart from the world. We still live in the world, but are not of the world. So if we're going to really enter into this spiritual warfare that the fathers and the great Christian thinkers teach about, we must understand that a warfare exists, right? Because the first rule of any type of warfare is to know your enemy. We have this propensity today to drum down sin, and when we do that, then we don't engage the spiritual life, we don't engage a life of prayer, because we don't think we need to. But when we realize the adversary exists, Satan exists, then we step up our prayer. And in doing so, we are reminded of the good news of salvation. This is such a seminal point, my dear friends. I mean, if sin did not exist, what's the point of the good news? If you reduce and drum down the bad news, why do you need the good news? So we turn to the Gospels and we adhere to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, what we quickly discover is that Satan exists, right? My dear friends, truth is not subject to time. Sacred Scripture has revealed this great spiritual battle that is going on, and we must learn not only from the Gospels, certainly first and foremost the Gospels, but also the Church Fathers. You know, speaking of the Gospels, I think we have a very important revelation that comes to us In the temptation narrative, if you were to go to the temptation narrative, specifically in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, we discover a most interesting truth. And it's found not only in the temptations, but the different names of uh, Satan. First, we get the devil, right? What does the devil mean? Accuser, okay? If you read on in that passage, it is no longer the devil, But the tempter, one who is tempting, he who places obstacles on one's path to God, right, to confuse and to accuse, to throw something in the middle of the path, this is the function of the devil. This is the function of the tempter, to divert us. And again, if there is anything that the great Christian thinkers teach us and the church fathers teach us, it is to identify what belongs to God and what belongs to the tempter one who is tempting. It's really interesting. If you were to go into the Old Testament, what do we read? Uh, God is one having mercy. And what about uh, Mary? One who has been graced. Okay, so here you have one who has mercy, one who has been graced, and the tempter, one who is tempting. I mean, it is the law of being that one thing must influence another according to its own nature and disposition. If God is substantial charity, which by nature is diffusive of itself, then the devil is the principle of contradiction, the principle of negation that wants to interrupt that flow of love from and to God. The response in creatures, of course, is obedience and to be able to identify what belongs to God and what belongs to this contradiction, this negation of love, the devil. Now, I mentioned something most interesting is discovered in this temptation narrative. You have the devil, you have the tempter, and if you go to verse 10, you have Satan. So for the first time, the Lord gives away (laughs) the pretender's name, Satan, that is adversary, enemy. This was the name consecrated by Jewish tradition to the dark forces that opposes itself to God's life-giving designs for man's salvation. So here you have the devil or accuser, the tempter, one who is tempting, and Satan, the adversary. This kind of variety of names indicates that the force of evil never remains abstract. But if you were under the illusion that the force of evil doesn't exist, then all things abide in abstraction. Once we believe in God and we read the gospel and we see things for what they are, good versus evil— we are brought into this deeper understanding that there is a spiritual battle. There is something called spiritual warfare. And if there's warfare, then you need to be able to identify the enemy. And the enemy, as Jesus Christ just said in the temptation narrative, is Satan. And as Pope Francis has been saying time and time again, he doesn't want our holiness. He puts anything in our path to distract us from holiness. This is why during this season of Lent, it is so important for us to take stock in those things that we are attached to so that we are not so susceptible to diversion, so that we do not succumb to the wiles of the adversary. He makes this promise to us. Everything's easy. My thought and my movements are like the winds. You are heavy, morose, intransigent, but I can transport you swiftly and smoothly in the twinkling of an eye and with a delightful breeze blowing in your hair from the depths of despair to the apex of convenience. This is the place where I can take you. He presents a path that is most traveled, not less traveled, but most traveled because it is the path of least resistance. My dear friends, what Jesus Christ teaches us in the gospel and what the lives of the church fathers and the great Christian thinkers teach us is that it is the path of most resistance where we will find paradoxically true joy. I know for many of us, this is a very difficult thing to understand, On a personal level, I have certainly found myself in situations where I was just asking God, where are you? I don't see you in this moment. I sure am not joyful right now, but God has challenged me when I have challenged Him. Have you sought understanding in how I am working in this moment? And is not that understanding in how I am working out my great mystery of salvation in this moment? Is something... That's worth rejoicing. Remember that joy and grace belong together. They come from the same Greek root. And the wonder behind that truth is when we live in God's grace, we begin to see things as God sees them. Even the most difficult moment, in fact, the most difficult moment, very might be God's great yet severe mercy. Because it draws us into God. And God will do anything for salvation. And if you would question that, this Lenten season and our gaze back towards the crucifix reminds us every time. Every Good Friday, we are reminded of that overarching truth. God will do anything, even if it means sometimes sticking out his foot. Okay. Okay, before we get too far into this Tuesday evening without talking about St. Anselm, what can we say about St. Anselm? Well, here we have a monk who lived a very intense spiritual life, an excellent teacher of the young, a theologian with an extraordinary capacity for speculation, a wise man of governance, and a great defender, a staunch defender, of course, of the Church's freedom. And for this reason, as I noted off the top, St. Anselm is one of the eminent figures of the Middle Ages, who was able to harmonize all of these qualities, thanks to the profound mystical experience that always guided his thought and his action. You know, Off the top, I noted he is a doctor of the Church, and certainly his deeper understanding of the mystical sciences is one of those reasons. We have been talking about this a great deal. George Wing was with me last week as we were reflecting into the most recent doctor of the church, St. Gregory of Narek from Armenia, a man of the mystical sciences, poetry, liturgical hymns, and music, uh, mystical theology, and spiritual theology, And again, what do we intend to mean when we use that phrase mystical theology? Or we could also say the mystical life. You know, what is the mystical life? The mystical life is that spiritual experience within the ordinary from which arouses a keen conviction that what is most beautiful, what is most extraordinary doesn't belong to this world, but belongs to God. You know, today we have the tendency to think of mystery and what do we think about? We think about the unknown, maybe what lies in stars or or what lies in the bottom of our ocean floors. I remember I was in the most fascinating conversation with someone when that plane went down from Malaysia somewhere in the Indian Ocean. And the observation was made, <laughs> these special submarines could only go down so far that we have no idea what lies at the bottom of our ocean floors in that region. And someone said, well, how is that possible? I thought we knew about everything that sits at the bottom of our ocean floors. No, we don't. So when you read or hear about something like this, this plane going down, you think to yourself, wow, what great mystery. On a personal level, anytime I go out into water, I'm always overwhelmed by the possibility of what lies underneath. I'm so fixated by it why am I so fixated by that? Why are we as a culture and really as a world so caught up in the unknown and what is mysterious? Well, I believe in the end, it speaks to the fact that we are created in the image and likeness of God, and we are wired for God. We must remember that when you talk about the stuff of mystery, what are we talking about? The inexhaustible reality? Yes, what sits at the bottom of our ocean floors? Yes, But remember what I noted last week and what we've been developing over the past few weeks, that the Greek verb there to mysterions, mio, it speaks more specifically to this religious experience or to this religious encounter. You see, mystery is not something that is so abstract as we can never touch it. No, mystery is something that is put before us that convicts us to take another step, to take a plunge, to go deeper and to what? Discover. There's joy in discovering. There's something invigorating. There's something exciting about discovering something. This is the beauty of God being mystery and the greatness of His love being so inexhaustible that He calls us to discover anew each and every day the greatness of His mystery and the greatness of His love. And this is what Saint Anselm did He gave us one of the great proofs of the existence of God. He plumbed the depths to better understand the incarnation and the crucifixion. He spent a great deal of time in all of his work so as to see it in light of mystery. One of the points, uh, more salient points that came to us last week was the importance of the relationship between mystery and evangelization. What do I mean? Well, what lies at the heart of mystery is how the physical is an icon of something else. What do I mean? Well, think about it. When you talk the stuff of mystery, you just don't look at it, right? But you look into it, through it, beyond it, discover the meaning of it. A thing in of itself is never enough when you talk the stuff of mystery. You contemplate it. And if there's anything that St. And some of Canterbury was known for was what He teaches us about the very thing we are talking about right now, how we are made to see each and every counter, not as something abstract, not as something well, by chance, you know, God just rolling his dice? No. We say that's a coincidence far too often. What God wants us to see is that He desires to abide in each and every moment. So in our encounters, when we see them as more than just physical encounters, but encounters where God wishes and desires to manifest himself, they become something so much more. When these encounters are encounters where we begin to wonder about the beauty and the mystery of God working in them, we are well on our way. Okay, so St. Anselm, born in 1033 or at the beginning of 1034. Some historians go back and forth on that. He was the first child of a noble family. His father was a coarse man dedicated to the pleasures of life who squandered his possessions. This is something we've seen before in past uh, saints. huh? On the other hand, we have his mother, who was a profoundly religious woman of high moral standing. And it was she, his mother, who saw to the first human and religious formation of her son, whom she subsequently entrusted to the Benedictines. So here, for the first time, St. Anselm was drawn to the spiritual life in a deeper way. In some of the writings that come to us about St. Anselm it talks about this man who dreamed one night that he had been invited to this splendid kingdom by God himself upon the snow-capped peaks of the Alps. But This dream left him. The story of St. Anselm is not entirely unique, but certainly somewhat unique in where he was drawn to the spiritual life at an early age, but he got caught up in the ways of the world and only at a later date would he be drawn back to the spiritual life. What happened was Anselm lost his mother and it deeply affected him. And so he neglected his studies, and he really just got caught up and was consumed by his earthly passions, much in the way like we think of St. Augustine. He grew deaf to God's call. And so he left home, and he began to wander through France in search of new experiences. And three years later, having arrived in Normandy, he went to the Benedictine Abbey of Bec, attracted by the fame of Lomfranc of Pavia, the Prior. I'll say that again. Lefranc of Pave, that was a very important name in the life of St. Anselm. For him, this was a providential meaning, crucial to the rest of Anselm's life, because it was under Lefranc's guidance that Anselm energetically resumed his studies. And it was not long before he became not only the favorite pupil, but also the confidant of this teacher. So now you have his monastic vocation being rekindled, And after careful consideration, at the age of 27, he entered the monastic order and was ordained a priest. And subsequent years saw him grow, and he became more fervent for uh, the religious life. It was when Lefranc moved on that Anselm, after barely three years of monastic life, was named prior of the Monastery of Beck and teacher of the cloistered school, showing his gifts as an excellent educator. Now, moving forward in the life of one St. Anselm, it was when Lefranc of Pavia became the new Archbishop of Canterbury that Anselm was asked to spend a certain period with him in order to instruct the monks and to help him in the difficult plight in which his ecclesiastical community had been left after the Norman conquest. Remember our period here, right? We're in the late 11th century. This is at the heart of the time of the Norman Conquest. So Anselm goes to Canterbury, and his stay turns out to be fruitful. He won such popularity and esteem that when Lefranc died, he was chosen to succeed him in the Archbishopal See of Canterbury. And ultimately, he becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury, and this is how we know him, right? St. Anselm of Canterbury in December of 1093. Now, as Benedict Sixteenth makes note, it was at this point that this eminent figure, St. Anselm, immediately became involved in this strenuous struggle for the Church's freedom, valiantly supporting the independence of the spiritual power from the temporal, right? This is a concept that we have seen through the ages. We see Anselm defend the church from undue interference by political authorities. And if you know your history, of course, this would have been the time of King William Rufus and Henry I. And it's worth noting, my friends, that this was a man who was always faithful to the Supreme Pontiff. He was always obedient to the Pope, and, the, and he endeared himself uh, to the Pope for this reason. Now, in 1103, this fidelity even cost him The bitterness of exile from his see of Canterbury. It was only in 1106 when King Henry I renounced his right to the conference of church offices, as well as to the collection of taxes and and the confiscation of church properties, that Anselm finally could return to England, where he was festively welcomed by the clergy and the people. So the long battle he had fought with the weapons of perseverance pride and goodness over time ended happily. And can we not all draw from this great truth that we could think of such things as perseverance, goodness, and a holy pride uh, end in such thing as happiness and joy. So this holy archbishop who roused such deep admiration around him wherever he went, dedicated the last years of his life to the moral formation of the clergy and to intellectual research into theological topics. Ultimately, he would die on April twenty first, 1109. Now, there is a great prayer here that really brings into focus the essence of his theology. This is St. Anselm. I pray, O God, to know you, to love you, that I may rejoice in you. And if I cannot attain to full joy in this life, may I at least advance from day to day until that joy shall come to the full. We can see, my dear friends, how this prayer enables us to better understand the mystical soul of this great saint of the Middle Ages, the founder of scholastic theology to whom Christian tradition has given the title Magnificent Doctor. Why? Because he fostered an intense desire to deepen his knowledge of the divine mysteries. But what you also see in that prayer is that there is a full awareness that the quest for God is never ending, at least on this earth. We've spoken to this before in the life of St. Augustine. So the clarity and logical rigor of his thought always aimed at Raising the mind to contemplation of God. This is what his life was all about. He states clearly that whoever intends to study theology cannot rely only on his intelligence, but must cultivate at the same time a profound experience of faith. So in this way, he teaches us various levels of a theologian's activity. That first, faith is a gift from God, that must always be received with humility. Second, the experience, which consists in the incarnation of God's Word in one's own daily life, and therefore, true knowledge. That third great principle, which is the fruit, never of ascetic reasoning per se, but rather of contemplative intuition. So we have faith, this free gift from God, Second, this experience, this encounter. And third, a knowledge, a bloom that is not to be reduced to just the reasoning, but of contemplative intuition. In this regard, St. Anselm, this magnificent doctor, is invaluable to everyone, just not theologians, but everyone who is seeking to better understand truths of the faith. Benedict the 16th highlights one of his great prayers when he says, I do not endeavor, O Lord, to penetrate your sublimity. For no wise do I compare my understanding with that. But I long to understand in some degree your truth, which my heart believes and loves. For I do not seek to understand that I may believe, but I believe in order to understand. For this also I believe, that unless I believe... I should not understand. My friends, does not this prayer speak so beautifully to the relationship between faith and reason and how wonderfully faith is that great principle that lays the foundation for knowledge, for knowing. Hear it again. I do not endeavor, O Lord, to penetrate your sublimity. For no wise do I compare my understanding with that, but I long to understand in some degree your truth, which my heart believes and loves. For I do not seek to understand that I may believe, but I believe in order to understand. For this also I believe, that unless I believed, I should not understand. What lies at the heart of this, my friends, is the come and see moment. Not the see and come, okay? Because reason does not precede faith, but faith precedes reason. That the deeper knowing, the deeper knowledge comes from that profound encounter that profound experience. Saint Anselm has so much to, to teach us. He once wrote, it is you whom my tongue ardently desires to praise. And so it is. We close with words of praise. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and never shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.